1: Welcome to Jamie All Over. I am very excited today to have on a life coach who specializes in trauma. Please welcome Amy Fiedler to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you as well.
1: Awesome. So I was introduced to you by my friend Craig Who I believe you podcasted with him a while ago and he said I recommend Amy she would be perfect for your podcast and then I looked at your page and I saw all of your amazing posts and I resonated with every single thing that you have on your Instagram and I was like oh my gosh absolutely can you give the listeners a little bit of your background before we get started of course
2: yeah so I struggled a lot when I was growing up into my teenage years just mentally and emotionally Emotionally, I grew up in a pretty chaotic household. There wasn't really a healthy example of boundaries or communication. And so I started going to conventional therapy and I didn't really take to it. I wasn't getting many coping tools or really an understanding of like why I had anxiety or why I was struggling with the things I was struggling with. I got a lot of, well, it's your parents' fault. And I was like, well, yeah, I know, but... (laughs) (laughs) help me move through this and be able to successfully live a life without it hindering me. So I kind of just like redirected from conventional therapy into a more spiritual path, really trying to get to know myself and understand myself deeper. And it was never a goal to get into this profession. I actually graduated college and went into fashion in New York. I was an assistant wardrobe stylist. I was really just enjoying my life and getting to go to photo shoots and do all of that, my own personal journey and the struggles I had was always at the forefront of the things I was focusing on and working through. And at one point, I just realized within my career, I wasn't happy. And I took some time to kind of explore my options. And I was like, what am I naturally good at? And what am I naturally interested in? And it led me down this path to really creating a business that's a direct extension of the work that I've done on myself and the struggles I've been through to be able to help other people who didn't have the tools that I didn't have that I now have and can offer to them in a really insightful way.
1: Amazing. This show champions people changing careers at any time in their life. It's never too late to kind of follow your natural talents or your passions or wherever life or the universe tends to lead you. And I have to believe that This is where you were meant to be because when I watch your videos, I'm just like, she's doing exactly what she needs to be doing and such a service to so many people. Thank you. Let's define trauma before we get into overcoming it, just so people can understand, is this something that they've possibly even been through? Because I was looking at the stats and so many people have experienced at least one trauma, if not multiple traumas within their lifetime.
2: Yeah, exactly. The majority of people have experienced a traumatic event.
1: Now, the common
2: misconception about trauma is that it's the event itself, but it's how the individual experiencing it has filtered it and processed and coped with it, right? So you and I could witness the same bad event in our lives. Maybe it's a car accident or a shooting or something, right? It doesn't really matter what it is, but we could Mm -hmm. both walk away with different impact on our lives and our nervous systems. So that's a really important point about trauma is that it doesn't have to be that someone went to war or as I used as an example, a shooting or a car accident that causes trauma it could be something as simple as a breakup that has caused your nervous system to get activated and make you feel like you're in danger and that's an automatic response that your body has and you want that to happen but what happens with trauma is that it stays in your body. You didn't cope with it at the time because you might not have been equipped to, and then it sticks with you. When you enter into other environments or relationships that remind you, or as I like to say, are confusingly similar to that initial traumatic event, the trauma gets activated in your system and you feel like you're reliving the event all over again.
1: Yeah. And I have to imagine I'm not the only one. In fact, I know I'm not who has been in previous unhealthy relationships, traumatizing relationships. They may have had abuse or violence, but even if it didn't go to that level of abuse or violence, at some point you've been cheated on. At some point you have had the rug pulled out from underneath you. The person that you thought you could trust the most completely betrayed your trust. And that in itself is traumatizing because it makes you question your safety in the world. And I'm reading that that is actually the definition or part of the definition of trauma is any event that makes you feel like something has happened beyond your control or like it's undermining your sense of safety in the world. And it doesn't have to be, like you said, a catastrophe. It could be what you would think is small to someone else or small to you and big to someone else. It's so true. It's just the way we individually cope with it. I want to Mm -hmm. kind of understand more how does it stay within the body because I heard fragmented and the way that the brain processes it, it puts it into different areas of the brain and then it can be triggered. How exactly are we holding on to that? So consider this, right? Emotion
2: needs to move through us. We always need an outlet for it. We need a space for it to be seen, heard, and validated. let's say you go through a traumatizing event and, you know, it impacts you mentally, but it also impacts you physically to some degree. Maybe your anxiety spikes or your heart rate goes up or, you know, you get physically injured. That trauma to the physical body is going to stay there until you actually look at it and provided a space to be seen, heard, validated, and soothed. And a lot of people think they've dealt with their struggles or abusive situations or traumatizing events. And this is why it's so common is because it's an ongoing journey and it's very, very layered. And until you experience new events or healthier relationships, let's say, you won't know exactly what trauma is still in your body until it suddenly gets activated and you have the opportunity, and that's how we have to look at it, to finally face it and provide it that healing space, to work through it, cope with it and soothe it. I think that what is really important to take away from that is that I don't think it's about preventing trauma from happening because I don't think it's preventable. I think it's about if you go through any event in your life, big or small, let's not place it into those categories and let's take the time to really feel our emotions. Maybe we go to therapy, maybe we call up a good group of friends, maybe you have a journaling or a meditation practice, but carve out space to just process the emotions and the thoughts that you had in that moment and release them. That's going to give you more of an opportunity to have it not stick in your body anymore.
1: What exactly counts as a release? How do you know it's been released? So for example, yesterday I began therapy again and I chose a therapist who had specific experience in treating trauma. Mm -hmm. In my session, I am now kind of reliving certain things and talking about it, stuff that happened maybe years ago. In talking about it, I found, and this may be common, but I found it made me relive it and put me in a weird headspace all day yesterday. I was out with friends last night and I couldn't even really form sentences and that's not good for a podcaster and I'm kind of just coming out of that cloud right now as I wake up this morning, hopefully. Mm. What is that experience like getting it out and releasing it? Because I feel like I'm in the middle of it. Can you maybe give me some more insight into that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So just first, what you're describing is you've had a trauma response to trying to process your trauma, which is very common. However, When you're in therapy, whatever the type of therapy is, because every different type resonates differently with people, what you want is you want that outlet, right? You want that space to be able to talk through it, but you also need an individual who's going to provide you reframes of the situation, specifically with trauma, because the way we remember it is in a threatening way. So that narrative in your head is retelling a very scary story, which immediately activates that nervous system to protect yourself. You want that to happen. Your body's doing the right thing in those moments. You feel like you're in danger. It wants to self-protect. When you're in a therapeutic setting, the practitioner, the therapist needs to be able to help you cope and soothe as you're processing and talking about it. So when a client comes to me, what we do is we slowly talk through the events that were traumatizing and we pause throughout the story to address certain moments where they didn't feel like they were in control or they were powerful. And in those moments, we reframe the situation or the thoughts they have about the situation to allow them to see how they now have power and control if that were to happen again. And then I help them understand why they behaved the way they did at the time. You know, when they feel powerless, that is really important is to educate them on why did I cope that way in that moment? Or why did I react that way? Or why did I shut down that way? So what you're needing are the coping tools and the self-soothing tools, which that is where then the conversation moves more towards the journaling and the meditation. But also that would bring us into a conversation about soothing your nervous system and having some somatic tools to work with, such as a really great one. And I know I'm kind of pivoting here, but yin yoga is trauma-informed yoga. It's a really great practice to help calm the nervous system. And then there's a slew of other ones that are grouped in there. But that's What you're needing in those moments. And that's what anyone is needing when they're processing. So to answer the direct question in terms of where is the release, the release is when you feel actual relief in telling the story and getting the reframe to be able to see the entire event differently for yourself.
1: Okay. I'm definitely not there yet. Like I said, it was my first session, and I think she was just kind of gathering information from me and didn't offer any sort of coping whatsoever in the first session, but she did say she was going to get more into that next time. So I feel like maybe I was just left in a bad position after just discussing it and bringing it all up again with no relief or release, as you would say. So Yeah it's good that I kind of understand what happened. That makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, it puts you back in control of your body, which I think is important for you because part of trauma healing is self-advocacy. It's something that a lot of trauma survivors struggle with is advocating for themselves and recognizing what is going on in their bodies so they can be able to ask for what they need. So I think that's really important and a great question. So hopefully that provides you some value moving forward in your therapy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that you mentioned was that even in healthy relationships, trauma that you thought that you have dealt with or moved on from can come up when you're with maybe someone new or even in a healthy relationship where someone is not doing anything to harm you. That personally happened to me. I was just so numb to everyone and relationships are very difficult for me. And so with him, I could actually finally feel something again, which was great. But unfortunately, I think the reason I was able to feel something with him is because he was love bombing me. I didn't even realize it. But that was all that like weird extra security that I needed from someone, which I want to work past and actually see that as a red flag now. But I think that's what allowed him to be able to draw me in. However, that aside, and the fact that we weren't meant to be together aside throughout the relationship, I noticed things coming up and I would try to break up with him like every week. And eventually he said to me, he's like, look, the next time you do it, I'm not going to beg for you back. You have to stop. And he set a boundary with me and I respect him for that. Mm. Things that were coming up for me was just I felt like he was going to disappear or that things he was saying he didn't actually mean or he maybe he was using me. And it's weird because... I don't know what part of that was my intuition versus what are the things that are coming up even in a normal healthy relationship that I need to address before I get into another one.
2: Yeah, that's a common struggle for a lot of individuals is, A, recognizing what is the difference between my trauma response versus is this an actual red flag? And often what I offer to clients of mine is an exercise where they sit down and they write out all of the behaviors that they do not value on a piece of paper. And on the other half of the paper, they write all the behaviors they do value, which is sounding redundant because it's the opposite, but there's value in seeing it on paper. It's tangible, it makes it real, it validates a lot of things. And then I have them go back to the list of the behaviors they don't value, and they write out exactly what happens to them mentally, emotionally, or physically if they are exposed to that behavior so something like if somebody doesn't communicate honestly and openly with me i get really anxious and then i panic and then i get really attached and needy and like they'll list out their entire behavior pattern and how it impacts not just them but maybe their friends their family their work their children the rest of their day like what is the ripple effect of it being exposed and from there what we've now got is a list of behaviors that we have boundaries around. So instead of somebody going out and searching for the quote-unquote red flags, what I have them do is recognize these are behaviors I don't value. Let's focus on the ones that we do, and if the ones that we do don't exist, a boundary needs to be there because clearly that's, in other words, a red flag. It's just a shift in perspective, but it's helpful for people because it's tangible versus what's happening now for a lot of people is that question in their mind of, Is that a gut feeling or is that a trauma response? Is that a red flag or is that a trauma response? When you make it tangible, it makes it a little more practical to implement.
1: So what are some examples of a trauma response? Well,
2: a trauma response is really dependent. It's very individual to the person and it's dependent on what is the fear that's activated. You just gave me a really great example when you were sharing your story. You have an abandonment fear. You feared that he would just disappear or leave, right? Yes. That happens for so many people. So it's not like an abnormal one. It's not just specific to you, but how you react, like your unhealthy coping skills in the moment that you fear abandonment are unique to you as an individual. For me, when I had my abandonment fears get activated in relationships, what I would do is I would, Fully have a panic attack. My heart would just start to race. I couldn't breathe. I would freeze and shut down and not know how to behave. I wouldn't know how to communicate with them. I didn't know what to do. I just felt frozen in time. And eventually, when my nervous system calmed down, which as you're experiencing can take 24 to 48 hours Mm -hmm. for your nervous system to regulate back to its normal state, then I would be able to think a little bit more logically about it. I would then try to address... The issue that I was having in my head, which the person on the receiving end obviously was confused, which is what happens for a lot of people, right? Because our fears and our trauma responses are in us. And often the other person on the receiving end has absolutely no idea what we're reacting
1: to. Exactly. So do you suggest or how do you suggest discussing this with a partner who may not have experience dealing or dating someone who has been through trauma. What do we look for in supportive partners and how do we discuss this with them to even begin with?
2: Sure. So a supportive partner is somebody who's going to be honest, transparent in their intentions, in their wants, in their needs. They're going to be willing to communicate. They're going to take accountability for their actions. They're going to always have a willingness to grow and move through conflict and be able to listen to you and respect your boundaries and they're going to have boundaries of their own. Just for clarity, an unsupportive partner is somebody who's going to shame you for the struggles you have. They're not going to want to communicate in difficult moments or through conflict. They're not going to want to take accountability for their own behaviors that are harmful to other people. They're not going to be honest with themselves. Or with other people. When you have a new partner in your life, I don't necessarily recommend on the first or second date (laughs) telling somebody, here's all of my trauma and here's how I need you to treat me. What I always recommend to individuals, and I'll just kind of take you through stages of a relationship real quick, if you're dating people, your goal in that process is to focus on what you value and that's your boundaries, right? And just pay attention to if the individual aligns with them. And as that relationship then builds into, let's say you've been together a couple months at this point, that's where conversations about how to best support you in certain moments that you're anxious or you're vulnerable or you're insecure can start to happen because you've gotten to know each other a little bit better. Maybe you're more intimate. Maybe you're more vulnerable with each other. You're spending more time together. And the way to go about offering this information to your partner is you got to be comfortable getting really honest about, well, with yourself first, to be able to share this with someone else, but to tell them directly what you need. I just was talking to an individual right before this podcast on this topic, and I said, you have to be comfortable with your struggles first to be able to even take that step to share them with your partner. Because if you're not fully owning the fact that you have abandonment issues or you panic when somebody doesn't text message you back right away, I mean, I could list off all of the trauma triggers I had just when I was starting to get into dating. And the ones that continue now that I'm in a full-fledged, committed relationship, because they're ongoing. It's so layered. So Telling them exactly what you need is really important, but you're not going to be able to do that unless you've gotten to know your own struggles first and your own trauma and understanding What helps soothe you and how they can then support and co-regulate when you're struggling in those moments? Or what behaviors can they adjust to compromise with you and meet you in the middle? I'll offer you a quick example. When I first got together with my now boyfriend, that was probably the very first extremely healthy romantic relationship I had ever been in. I had always only ever been in really abusive, traumatizing, romantic relationships. I struggled my entire life in that area. So I was immediately triggered by the fact that he was so kind (laughs) and so nice and so gentle, which to somebody who doesn't have trauma might be super confusing because they're like, well, isn't that everything you want? Mm -hmm. Of course. But it's not anything I've ever had. And so it's so foreign to me and my experiences, and therefore my nervous system, that my nervous system feels like it's a threat. Yes. Like, what's the catch? Yes. Why are you being so nice? So I, at one point, had to say to him, listen, I love you, and I I love how kind you are, and how much you want to listen and comfort me. But sometimes I then get paranoid, and question why you're being so nice to me and he'll say to me well I can understand given your experiences why you would fear that and think that and feel that and you let me know if there's something I can say to you or do for you that would help to support you in that moment that you're scared or you're paranoid you know or you're fearful of something but you're going to have to go talk to your therapist Mm -hmm. (laughs) about working through that, right? And so I give that example because I think that's key. It's not our partner's job to help us work through our trauma. They can best support us when we're working through it with a professional or whatever we do, and we're able to come back to them and say, you know, I, I was able to eventually say to him, listen, When whatever happens, whatever the trauma was or the trauma trigger was that makes me panic, it helps me when you hold me. It helps me when you just come and embrace me and give me a tight hug. It calms my nervous system down because that's a form of co-regulation. He's holding his body next to my body. My body then can feel his heartbeat and it starts to soothe itself. And he goes, okay, you got it. I can do that. But we can't learn those things unless we're learning our trauma once more.
1: He sounds great, first of all. Does he have a brother? Oh, no. he's, amazing.
2: <laughs> he's amazing. He's amazing.
1: Okay, so it sounds like what I'm getting from this is that maybe it's a common misconception that we have to be fully healed before we even get into a relationship because it's a process and you're never, maybe never going to be fully healed, but you will be able to get to a place where you can have healthy relationships. And it also sounds like to me that you need to be before you get into the relationship, you need to understand your own trauma and maybe even understand what's going to trigger it and be able to communicate it with someone else. What I'm thinking is like, don't wait till everything's perfect because it's never going to be, but at least get to that point where you understand yourself. Yes. Yes.
2: You have to be supporting yourself, you know? And you said it, exactly right. People have this misconception that they have to be perfect and all of these problems need to be healed before they can find their person or be in that happy, healthy relationship. And that's just not reality because the minute you get in that relationship, there's going to be so many opportunities to grow. And the goal is to be healthy enough on your own and have your partner be healthy enough on their own where you can come together as two individuals, who are managing their own shit, so to speak, and then be able to embrace each other and best support each other and communicate with each other so that you can then extend that support out to each other to help each other grow and evolve into better versions of yourselves. Got it.
3: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: As I mentioned before, I think I, or I guess my trauma response has been to be numb and not mm-hmm. to everyone, but only in like romantic partners or potential partners. I love my family. I love my friends. I call myself emo all the time and make fun of myself. I can cry if I'm talking about something I'm passionate or care about. So I have access to emotions. However, I'm numb when it comes to like dating and I never like anyone or very rarely like someone. Is this a trauma response? And if it is, how do I work through that
2: It's absolutely a trauma response, and what it sounds like is that you disassociate from those emotions that could come up when it's in a romantic setting because that's your way of protecting yourself, that you've gotten traumatized or abused or hurt to the point where the way you coped in that moment was to tuck those emotions away where you can't access them. And so when you then meet someone, you don't feel the way you would feel when you're interacting with a friend or your family member, or when you're talking about something that you're passionate about. And so that's the way you know, right? My emotion Mm. exists, Amy. It just doesn't exist in this area of my life. Well, why? Because that's how you coped when you didn't know how to cope with the horrible event that occurred, regardless of the context of the situation. So to answer, how do you heal that? Well, your goal with your therapist will be to start to tell those stories to access those emotions, right? We want to poke at them, loosen them up. And like, I mean, I've got visuals in my head, obviously, as I'm talking. But if you visualize it as like, you took all of your emotions and you shoved them in a Tupperware container in the back of your fridge, and you forgot about it, you want Somebody to start cleaning out the fridge to access that container to then open it up and access those emotions. And listen, it's not easy work. I never, I mean, I've been through it. And I think that's what makes my work so unique in this area is I'm always speaking from experience. Anything that I have gone through is usually the stuff that I'm posting about. So I know how hard it is to tap into the pain that you tucked away for safety purposes. But once you let it out, you open up space. And like I tell all my clients, that's the goal. We want to create space because without that space, we can't welcome in new healthy emotions. Your trauma right now is tucked away in your fridge and it's taking up valuable space for new groceries.
1: Okay, got it. Well... (laughs) I think I'm starting to work on it, finally. (laughs) I mean, it sounds
2: like it, but a first session is usually like, let me gather all the information. Let me see what our work is going to be together. So I think as you move forward, you have a better idea now of like what to expect. And hopefully, you know, if it's not provided, what to then ask for from your therapist.
1: Okay. So pivoting a little bit from our own trauma to now dealing with other people who have trauma... I think what we need to understand is even though we can empathize, how do we put up a boundary to not give this person, I guess, a pass to treat you Mm -hmm. horribly just because you understand the traumatic events that they've been through? Obviously, it's their responsibility to seek treatment as well, and they can't just dump it on everyone and treat everyone like crap. How would you suggest dealing with these types of people? Great question. Because it's something a lot of people struggle
2: with, especially within family relationships, like mm-hmm. childhood trauma. And then that child is now an adult and they're dealing with their parents. I'll use myself as an example. I'm very open on my platforms about my challenges with my parents over the years and how far we've come. As you said, I used to allow my mother's trauma to be projected onto me and to take responsibility for it because from a very young age, she told me I was responsible for it. She Mm. told me to fix it for her. So as I became an adult, I naturally defaulted to the same pattern that I had long done since a very young age. I had to learn exactly how to do what you just asked, which is to have empathy and compassion for my mom, to understand where her trauma developed when she was a child, but to not hold myself responsible for it. And that's where the boundary gets put, is in the realization that I can't help her feel better in this moment. Like, I just said to you earlier when you're supporting a partner, right? When I go to my boyfriend and I share something with him that I'm traumatized by and I'm triggered by, he can't fix it because it's not actually coming from him. It's coming from a long time ago and a totally different person. So he could reassure me. He could repeat to me time and time again, I'm going nowhere. You're safe here. None of those things are going to work for a couple reasons. One, when you are in a triggered state, when your nervous system is activated, you don't have access to your executive functioning. Your executive functioning allows you to think logically. It allows you to problem solve. It allows you to do all of those wonderful things that we can do when we're not in a triggered state. I can't think my way out of that trauma response. I have to soothe my nervous system through somatic tools. I need to rub my hands together, rub an ice cube on the sides of my neck. I need to do certain things to non-verbally communicate to my body. And the reason I explain it this way is because going back to the initial question, if my mom is triggered and I'm on the receiving end of it, and I now feel responsible or like I have to tolerate it because I understand where it comes from, I remind myself nothing I say or do in that moment is going to help her. Mm-hmm. She's going to have to help herself. And it's actually incredibly enabling to another individual to take responsibility or to just tolerate the behavior. Because what you're doing is you're preventing them from the opportunity. To self soothe and regulate themselves and actually have an opportunity to move through the trauma. So, knowing this helps a lot of individuals be committed to setting their boundary in those moments because now they have that recognition that, like, well, me putting up with this is actually not helping the situation. I can be kind, I can be forgiving, I can be understanding, but it's not helping them to grow, it's not helping them to feel better. If I just turn the other cheek and I don't set a boundary here. And it's harming you. So you can be kind and you can have boundaries. And it's actually kinder to have the boundary because you're supporting them more than if the boundary didn't exist.
1: Okay. What would you say to me or anyone else who has these forced interactions?
2: Well, you have more of a chance of having a civil relationship when you feel respected. And the way to feeling respected is to respect yourself with the boundaries that you need. So my rule of thumb is always communicate the boundary first and foremost. When they continue to overstep and ignore it or disrespect it or blame it on their trauma and say that they just can't control it, they're impulsive, whatever, your job is not to re-explain it, you Mm -hmm. know? Your job is to now match your actions to what you want to happen. No longer engaging with them is important because now you're sending the message that you are following through on what you said. If you're not going to stop, I'm stopping because this boundary is mine and it's important to me. Even if you ignore it, I'm no longer engaging. You didn't listen, I'm listening to myself. I often use my mom as the example because she's lovingly the best teacher and most difficult relationship <laughs> I've ever had in my life and I'll tell clients you know I will communicate something to her and think she's a grown adult and she understood me and she'll look me dead in the eye and acknowledge like okay I will no longer call you names when I'm upset when we're on the phone together and I'll go great she understands me and then we get on the phone the next time and she gets worked up about something and here come the names and I Mm. think what didn't you understand yeah So that cycle repeated for a while in many different ways, in many different areas with her until I ultimately realized, okay, you know what? I'm not going to keep re-explaining this to somebody who's going to keep doing the same thing. I'm just going to hang up the phone the next time she does it because now I'm going to send her the message that when you do this, you no longer get to talk to me. And so what happens is she starts to adjust in time to me setting that boundary and upholding it. And suddenly she realizes, oh, I don't get to talk to Amy anymore when I act like this. So, you know, she's pretty unpredictable. But normally in some of these situations, she suddenly shifts because she doesn't want to get off the phone.
1: That's very insightful. I kind of want to underline the fact that trauma can come in several forms and People may have experienced it and not even realized it's still affecting them. And it can also present itself as physical health conditions, which, Mm. I mean, I've heard of, you know, you have back pain, you have neck pain, it could be stress, but what other kind of health conditions could be potentially related to someone's trauma? And have you witnessed clients of yours go through that and then cure or feel better physically after addressing their trauma.
2: Yeah, a common physical ailment that a lot of people who have trauma have is stomach issues, gut issues, digestive issues, because that's representative of our processing of emotion and information. And then obviously, you know, your bowel movements are the release of that. So people struggle with those stomach problems. Like, yes, I'm somebody who has food allergies and food sensitivities and such things. But also, I have these physical ailments when I'm, Worked up about something and I am triggered by something. I suddenly have an instantaneous stomach ache and I haven't eaten any food I'm allergic to, and I have to connect the dots on who did I just talk to, what was the topic, and how is it impacting me physically. So yes, you can absolutely have other physical problems, headaches, you can have heart conditions, you can have, as I said, gut issues, you can have back problems, all sorts of different struggles with your physical health, What happens in healing them is learning the tools to process your emotions. And when I say processing, just so everybody understands what I mean by that, it's talking about them and making sense of them. Not keeping it to yourself and suppressing it or repressing it just to move on and get over it. You want to talk it out or write it out in a journal. Find some form of release for what you're thinking about or what you just witnessed or experienced to get the emotions out of you. You have to imagine emotions are like little balls of energy in your body. They'll sit there and then they'll get poked at by an event or a conversation and they'll get activated. So to keep everything flowing physically, mentally, and emotionally, or in other words, holistically through your body, you want to incorporate all these different activities from journaling, exercise, therapy. I'm a huge advocate, obviously. Finding all of these different tools to keep your system balanced and regulated and everything moving in the right direction.
1: As far as journaling goes, I have noticed that if you do write it out, and for me, I think it's more effective when I'm actually putting a pen to paper rather than typing it. And I don't mm-hmm. know if there's something to that, but if I write something out, I notice The physical release from my body just from getting it written down. Can you give us any tips for best practices for journaling? Sure.
2: And to your point, it's different for everybody in terms of writing versus typing. Mm -hmm. Some people find that their mind and their hand one is faster than the other. And so maybe typing works better. I am like you, I find writing to be way more beneficial when it comes to this. But pick your modality, if you will. Sit down and what I do is I have a conversation with myself as if I'm somebody else. So I'll prompt myself with a question. I'll be like, well, how are you feeling about this, right? And fill in the blank with whatever the problem is or the event that occurred. And then I'll just kind of answer it as if I'm in therapy or I'm talking to a friend, but I'm carrying on this full conversation with myself. And my goal in the entire process is just to constantly encourage myself to be as honest as possible. What you do is a couple things in that moment. Number one, the power of journaling is that you're creating a safe space with yourself to be able to feel and process your emotions. And that's really important and helpful for trauma survivors who do not feel safe. To cultivate that safe space to just feel things and think about things and be with your emotions is hugely valuable in your healing process. The other thing you do is you're providing a place to relieve yourself of those emotions, right? To release them from your body and to feel validated. Because if you're carrying on a conversation, then part of of that might sound like, I can understand why you're feeling this way, or I totally know why you reacted that way. This is what happened. This is what I was thinking about. And in the future, I'd like to do this instead. And that's my method. I think it's pretty Practical, digestible, and easy enough where a lot of people struggle to sit down and carve out that time in and of itself. Yeah. I think if we make it really simplistic, then it's much more fun to do.
1: What do you think of the five-minute journal? I see a lot of people posting about every morning they get up and they do their five-minute journal, and I think there's prompts in it. Have you heard of it?
2: I have heard of it. I don't have one, so I don't okay. actually know what's included, but I really truly believe to lean into whatever resonates with you, right? I, I'll get asked often about different journals or even books to read and I always say listen if it's speaking to you then there's something in it that resonates so try it right because it might work for a period of time and then you might evolve from it and you might turn it into something else or create your own method from it so I would say there's probably value there I don't know in terms of what it would help you with or what it wouldn't because I obviously have never tried but there is a lot of value I will say in placing a time limit on how long you're sitting with your emotions or doing some of those activities because if you're really uncomfortable and it's your first time doing it, then you at least know there's an end to it. Kind of like a therapy session. You know there will be an end and you won't be trapped in it for the rest of the day. So that might be really beneficial to some people out there.
1: Yeah, I think I need to do that because the thought of me carving out the time to do it somewhat prevents me from even starting a lot of the Mm. time. But if I know like, okay, I'm just going to do this for five or 10 minutes and whatever comes out comes out. I think that would be more motivational for me to actually get it done. Yeah. Speaking of me not getting things done, I actually have a question about executive functioning. What I've noticed is that if I start a project, for example, I wanted to organize all of my clothes and donate the stuff that I don't wear anymore and just kind of organize my my living space my bedroom, my office area, my desk, and I will start these projects but I don't finish them. A lot of times I'm almost in worse shape than I was before I started because now I have a pile of clothes Mm. that I've been looking at for a very long time and it bothers me every day. And I'm like, you need to just finish that. And I don't. I don't know. And I think I'm going to talk to my therapist about this, but is that some sort of weird response to me just freezing and not being able to finish something?
2: Well, here's the thing. There might be, and it's definitely something that's happened to your therapist about. There is a connect drawn between ADHD or ADD and trauma. A lot of people get misdiagnosed with ADD who have trauma and so there is a connection there in terms of starting things and then kind of getting distracted and not being able to finish them and those symptoms if you will relate directly to being diagnosed with ADD or ADHD. As someone who has trauma and has a similar struggle that you're describing, but sometimes with simple tasks, but sometimes even with work tasks, right? Like I'll start creating something Mm -hmm. and then I'll kind of just stop and not return to it for a while, even though I really want to get it done and it's important. So it's not that it's not valuable. It's just that I can't focus on it. Yeah. What happens for us is we need more stimulation. So what I've learned is, and this holds true if anyone out there has ADD or ADHD, you need to get that hit of dopamine and you need to find it in other things. It will look like you're multitasking or it will look like you're not able to focus on something, but it's very intentional to drive you to actually complete a task because our levels are much lower. And I don't know the direct correlation because like I said, like when you're talking about trauma, there's often misdiagnoses. So like I said, it would definitely be something to discuss and explore with your therapist, but there might be a correlation there. And what I can encourage you to do is try out timing your cleaning and your organizing and then switching up the routine to get some sort of dopamine hit so incorporate a fun activity that doesn't require you to think too much or plan too much Mm -hmm. in between and just break up the task and I think you'll see that you'll be able to return and be way more productive if there's a mixture in activity there and it's mainly because your dopamine levels are lower
1: wow thank you I'm going to try that you're welcome I want to thank you so much for being here. I love all of this information. I would love to have you back on down the line because I did get several listener questions that unfortunately I had so many questions I wasn't able to get to theirs. So (laughs) I would love to have you back sometime in the future and and get into their questions as well. But in the meantime, where can people find you?
2: Absolutely. Everyone can find me. I hang out a lot on Instagram. So at Amy the Life Coach, or you can find all of my services at Amyfeedler.com. I have a podcast called Connect the Dots Bitch, which you can stream on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you stream your podcasts. But... Like I said, I come on over to my Instagram page. There's lots of free guidance and videos there and access to additional resources that I think will benefit a lot of people greatly.
1: Amazing, and I'm gonna put your Instagram in the show notes as well. Thanks so much, Amy. This was a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much, Jamie.
1: Pleasure is all mine. Aw, and thank you for listening.